AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. So Matt, I hear you have a story about a CSS side channel attack. Yeah, this is really interesting, and it gets a little bit down in the weeds, so bear with me. Uh, but I thought it was a really fascinating attack. So the way that browsers are built today, they sort of enforce separation between content from one site and another site. That's called the, the same origin policy, and that's key to understanding the story. So what you can do is you can put an iframe around, so you can put a site within a site, um, but you're not allowed to really access the memory, but with CSS, which is sort of like a style sheets, it's a way of, of styling the way the content appears on the site, you can put a layer of something on top of something else and sort of blend them together so the colors are, are blended. And it turns out that you can use this as an interesting side channel attack to figure out what's within that frame. A side channel attack is a way of getting information out of a system by non-standard means that aren't really a function of the system, but sort of a, a side effect of the way that normal operation occurs. So the attack goes a little bit like something like this. You get a whole bunch of layers, like a thousand of them. You stack them together on top of what you're trying to read out of, and you use these blend modes. And it takes some time. You're basically doing an operation so that the colors of all these somehow add up mathematically to the final product. But that takes some time. And depending on what's on the bottom, it takes a different amount of time. So as you do this over and over and over and you keep moving your, your stack of, of layers, you take a note of how long it takes and based on the time differences, you can infer what's in that section. So it's kind of like scanning across the region that you're not allowed to read to sort of infer what's inside of it. So I, I, did, I did go through the story. Uh, a couple of things are interesting. One is just really the power that you have on the client side now. Uh, there are things you can do in CSS um, that you know, traditionally, you know, more power was on the server side. So there's so many more opportunities now for these these types types of side channel attacks. Uh, another thing that's interesting is, you know, uh, the sites should really start looking more at these these uh, X frame options and the HTTP headers. So really restricting, uh, you know, what other sites can load and not load on your your content. The web developers themselves need to realize that this is a possibility and potentially um, be a little bit more careful about how their frames are used by other websites. So Matt, was there any, any um, examples of exploits that actually occurred? Or is this just a theoretical thing that someone found? Or are there any examples out in the wild that we saw? So there's no examples of anybody using this for criminal purposes out in the wild. The authors, they developed a pr couple of proof of concepts of it. So if you go to the, the write-up for this, they'll show you that if you were to go and log into Facebook, in one tab and then go to their site in the browser, it would be able to read out things like the portion where they expect to see your name, it would read out your name uh, visibly using this technique. So over time, it would be able to do that. I don't think that there were any known exploits, but there was a big concern um, that someone could use this to read your information, whether it be on a regular website or something like Facebook. An interesting thing to note is that somebody had discovered this back in March of 2017 as well. Somebody else had reported it, and I guess it's it got stuck in the the, the process over at, at uh, Google to try and get the bug fixed. And then two other researchers independently found the same exact bug. So um, I think there's a lot of interest in this area. The more features you add to a web browser, which is already 
a very complicated piece of software. The more features you add to it, the more attack surface you're probably going to expose. I mean, it's crazy the sorts of things that they're putting into web browsers today. They, there was a standard for web Bluetooth where a, a, a website could use Bluetooth to reach out to the devices sitting around the laptop. So as long as something can, can go to a website or force you to go to a website, convince you to get there, it could sort of map what devices are near you. I mean, that stuff I think is a bit much. I, Maybe it's because I spend a lot of time on the command line, but I don't need a browser with a whole lot of features. I don't think I need anything else crammed into the browser, but um, somebody thought it was scary. a good idea. <laughs> so for users, basically patch, because this has already been fixed in all of the browsers that were affected by it. If you're a developer, understanding the environment in which your site's content may also be um, loaded is key to defending against these sort of general class of attacks. So, Mike, I heard you came up with an interesting story about S3 buckets. Yeah, Karen, so this is yet another story about Amazon S3 exposure. So S3 is the Amazon simple storage service for the AWS public cloud. Uh, we've seen a lot of stories about these, uh, these public breaches where S3 buckets, where you basically store containers, you can store all your data, files, videos, in this case, databases. Uh, where they're, they're left exposed to, to public access. So the buckets in this case were owned by Honda India, and some security researchers from Chromtech uh, found that there were two buckets they had exposed, which had some unprotected database files uh, for this application called Honda Connect. And they were basically leaking out 50,000 users' uh, private information. So there was information about owners of the Hondas, their passwords, their information, even their kind of trusted person to, to notify in terms of emergency. I even think VINs were exposed. Certainly, uh, you know, we continue to see this trend where companies of all sizes have these exposures of S3, uh, and it doesn't seem to be stopping. So, we, you know, certainly calls for, you know, more monitoring in place, the ability to really understand what you're, what you're exposing and what your, your policies are for, uh, for certainly public cloud. So that, that sounds like there's actually two interesting things you've said there. First is that, these things were open to the public in general. Now, you wouldn't usually configure them that way, and that's a major problem by itself. The second is that it sounds like they were also world-writable, so anybody could have shown up and added stuff. So if they wanted to modify that database, they wanted to change some files that are a component of that Honda app, that could be a bigger problem as well. If I could force the user, for example, to update to a brand new version of the app that has my code inside of it, then I've just attacked the user and the first step in the chain was getting access to this open S3 bucket. And what's interesting is that when you create a bucket, by default it's private. So only the account owner has permissions. You have to purposely, accidentally, or someone maliciously has to go in and change those policies to expose these publicly. You know, there's a lot of tools though that Amazon provides so that you can make sure that you don't open yourself up like that. And it's interesting that no matter how many embarrassing stories come out like this, that uh, somehow these very large corporations aren't availing themselves of the tools that are out there to make sure that they keep these things closed. There are lots of tools that Amazon provides. There's open source kinds of tools. And obviously there's also SaaS providers who can monitor your S3 buckets and ensure that they always stay closed. The nice thing about Amazon's AWS is that it's very easy to set stuff up. But that means any of your internal controls on you know, who gets a server, how is it configured, where does it reside, that completely gets bypassed in the favor of, well, I can just set it up now. 
you know, that's really easy, but everything else sort of gets ignored, the stuff you would usually go through to make sure it's secure. But then the security guys need to go through and set it up and say, yes, I don't care what you do. This, there's, this has always got to be the default so that the developers do need to kind of go through a couple of extra hurdles. Um, and I think it's, a, it's just another example of what we learn about how important it is to have kind of cleanliness out in the public cloud. I agree. It's really important that the security organization and the users of these public clouds, um, which makes things so easy to use, work together to, to ensure that we kind of keep basic cleanliness out there. Uh, one interesting twist I, I found to this story was uh, the security researchers were looking through the bucket contents and they found a text file. And it turns out that a couple months prior, another security researcher had also stumbled upon these exposed buckets. And he put this text file there. He's kind of a good Samaritan. He says, hey, you know, your buckets are exposed. You should think about securing them before the bad guys find them. Uh, and they still hadn't, hadn't found uh, that, that indication that someone else had been in there. So I, I would say that the thing to tell people who are running S3 or anything in the Amazon cloud is, if you know you're, somebody in your company is using this, maybe have a dedicated email box for these sorts of things. If you've got a bug bounty program, an abuse contact, I mean, make that known to the public because if someone's going to go ahead and find these things and wants to do the right thing and tell you quietly, they've got to have a place to do it. That's a really good point. Adding it to a bug bounty right. program makes sense. All right. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you. Karen, it sounds like there's a little bit of good news in the fight against DDoS. Somebody ended up with a pretty decent uh, prison term as a result of some DDoS activity. Yeah, I was really surprised to find that this guy in New Mexico actually got 15 years in prison for DOSing his previous employer and a few other people. And they really prosecuted him very vigorously, obviously, with a 15-year sentence. But as I researched the story, I realized um, that there's been quite a few other um, prosecutions and convictions lately. Uh, this is particularly interesting to me because my responsibility is, is the technology that we use inside the AT&T network to defend against DDoS attacks. And we have seen a reduction in the number of attacks that we're seeing, especially after the web stressor um, arrest that, that occurred about a month ago. I'm hoping that this is a trend and that law enforcement continues and uh, it's going to help us in our daily defenses against uh, the bad guys. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because this one is a little bit different. I think you started off by saying that this is someone who is actually attacking people. This isn't someone providing a stressor service, a booter. No. This is someone who was the, the finger on the button for it. And I think that is a little bit different because usually what we see is you know, law enforcement will go after the stressor because it's easier to take down the person running the infrastructure than it is to go after the, the individuals who will use that infrastructure. And there's, there's probably many, many more users than there are services. I think it means that there may be more prosecutions of folks who are the users of these services. So uh, hopefully that will discourage folks in the future. And that means that those people who have to defend against DDoS attacks, it makes their life a whole lot easier. Actually, I just pulled out some um, uh, some statistics. In the web stressor, um, there were 136,000 users that were identified as a web stressor. And actually, one of them that they said was this young 18-year-old guy in Amsterdam has just been also been prosecuted for attacking some big banks in the Netherlands. And uh, there was also another case I just read recently, only a couple of months ago, for a guy, again, the perpetrator of the DDoS attack for 
um, dosing the city of Akron, Ohio. So I think what we're seeing is, is the willingness from law enforcement to really go after the users and the perpetrators of these DDoS attacks, which I think is, is a really positive move. Obviously, the law enforcement tools are, are getting better, that they can actually find these people who are actually using these uh, tools and, uh, and prosecuting them. So, so, yeah, I've seen, I don't know if it was in this particular case, but I've seen in cases when they take down these DDoS for higher providers, they're able to use their databases to then track down, again, these users. Uh, so that may dissuade people sometimes uh, from maybe using these, these services. Uh, they, can, uh, they can be tracked down eventually when they, they were taken down and we're seeing more of a trend of them being taken down now. I've also seen that in, in many cases, um, part of the thing that leads to the takedown of one of these, these stressor sites is where the user list actually gets exposed. And having your name or your email address listed there as one of the users is certainly, uh, I, bet it's, I bet it's a sort of a shock to the system of the people who thought that they could get away with it and no one would ever know that they were a customer. So. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I just thought it was really interesting that for years and years, even in conversations that, you know, for those of us in the security area, we do talk to law enforcement from time to time, and sometimes it's hard to get their attention or their, their desire to kind of make these efforts on very difficult cases sometimes to prove. But I think it's a, it's a great trend that they're really putting the resources into stopping this. Well, I think really uh, to defend against the DDoS attack against you, um, you really need to work with your network service provider, whether that's AT&T or another carrier, because in reality, you're never going to be able to have enough horsepower on your own uh, customer premise to be able to fight an attack. Now, on the other side, there's a lot of people who participate in DDoS attacks. So from that perspective, what I would recommend for everyone is that you always keep your, your devices up to the latest patch versions and you don't have a kind of admin or password 123 as your standard password. That's how they all get taken over and they become weapons and they're attacking other people. So let's take a look at the internet weather for this week. So these are the top 10 most probed ports. Top of the list for the week is 23TCP, which is Telnet. In second place is 445, that's related to uh, SMB protocol, which has also been very popular. 22TCP is SSH. Uh, 1433, I believe, is MS SQL database server. 8545 is one of the ones that's kind of recently made its way up in the last couple of months. That has to do with the Ethereum cryptocurrency. Uh, 6379, I believe, is the Redis in-memory database server. 3389 is remote desktop protocol. ADTCP is, of course, HTTP, and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on there. Uh, 80ICMP is echo request, or basically ping. Uh, 1911 TCP is the Tritium AX protocol. I believe it's like a HVAC, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, control systems port. That may be both of things to come, actually. It I might think be. that uh, it's going to be interesting to watch those kinds of ports going forward. Yeah, that one has been around the top 10 for a while now. Uh, and sometimes we see it from uh, research organizations. We think, tend to think that's less of a, a, a threat. Uh, but it is concerning that you know if they end up finding things that are connected to the internet, that's a problem. So contrast that with the most sources probing, and this is tends to be more indicative of botnet behavior. So 445 is at the top of that list, and it's been there for a couple of weeks, followed by 23, which we said was Telnet. 8080 is an alternate web port. 5431, 
that one we've seen sort of spike up and down for a while. So based on the timing of when we measure it, it can either be very, very high on the list or very low. And you'll have sudden spikes of maybe a couple of hours. So very, very large botnets or a very large number of endpoints scanning for it, but then it disappears again. So moving on, uh, port 80, TCP we talked about, 80 ICMP again is ping. Uh, 81 is another alternate web port. I believe that's generally related to vulnerabilities on IoT devices, what we've discovered. Uh, 5555 is the Android debug bridge. So basically, Android devices with a debug port internet facing. Not a, not a good thing to have, really. Uh, 6881 is usually related to BitTorrent, uh, and that tends to be because BitTorrent is so, such a widespread peer-to-peer -peer protocol, um, large number of, of sources using the protocol looks a lot like a large number of sources scanning for the protocol. So we take that with a grain of salt, typically. And then 21 TCP is uh, file transfer protocol. And you can see here that uh, for most sources probing between 23 TCP and 445, that takes up about half of the scanning that we're seeing uh, in terms of the sources that we're seeing. So very large botnets indeed are looking at 23 TCP and 445. So we usually take a look at 23 TCP because it's been king forever. Uh, this is a 90 day graph and you can see that there's been some ups and downs in terms of the number of sources scanning. We tend to think that this is related to some several large botnets, uh, Hajime, uh, there's a couple of the other IoT ones that tend to focus on 23 when they're not actively scanning something else. So interesting, still huge volumes though. SMB has been cycling like this ever since WannaCry, really. Uh, and it's kind of hard to tell from this view, but it's actually trending down slightly towards the end of the, uh, of the, the 60 day window that we're looking at. It had been creeping up steadily, and I think it might be at a turning point. Uh, but again, hard to predict that sort of thing. Port 8545 TCP, uh, the GF daemon for Ethereum has a port that it exposes to the internet, which you're not really supposed to expose to the internet. It's supposed to be more on your own local network. And one of the bad things about it is that if you expose it and someone knows how to query it properly, they can actually just steal the money out from right under you. So people- It's not a little like memcache. It was supposed to be internal, wasn't it? Yeah, that's, that's true. And there's right. a lot of, of protocols that we've come, come across that always were intended to be on the inside of a network. Right, and, and people, people just them. Exactly, so that's one of those things we could, you know, we could repeat it till we're blue in the face that people should be aware of what it is they put internet facing because someone's going to become looking for it. So port 6379 is actually more like memcached. It's another in-memory uh, data store. Basically, it's a database on the internet. Uh, and it doesn't authenticate users by default, because again, they're assuming you would put this on the inside of a network and not on the internet. Again, a little cleanliness would be helpful. Absolutely. Uh, port 8889 was an interesting one. It didn't show up in the top 10 of either of our, uh, our measurements this week, but it did trigger one of our baselines. So I decided I would look into it. And as it turns out, there's a single source in Switzerland who in the last couple of days, maybe the last five days, has suddenly become interested in it. So I took a look, and it turns out there's another cryptocurrency called EOS, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right at all, but EOS is how you spell it. And on port 8888, um, it exposes uh, one of its interfaces. And there was a security flaw known with that that was published about uh, a week or so ago. And 8889 is also related to the same software. And this IP address that's scanning was publicly known to be scanning heavily for 8888. So I think this is a continuation of the same kind of scanning activity. Just the attacker has focused his efforts on a different port related to the same software. So we didn't see the initial one. Well, at least I didn't see it this week. Um, 
but they shifted to a different port. We saw the shift, and we will trace it back to the original activity. So it's, I can see that whole continuation. That was interesting. And one of the ones that I've been following for a while is this port 2000. Uh, Microtik routers had a vulnerability a while back in the web interface. So the bug was on port 80. Um, but it's much easier to scan for something if you have a characteristic for the device. So they were scanning port 2000, which was characteristic of the Microtik routers. And then once they found it, it was a Microtik device, looked at port 80 on the same device uh -huh. to see if they could find the flaw. Uh, there was a huge spike you can see around the beginning of May. Uh, that has since petered off. And I, I think we're probably going to call it quits on monitoring this bug. And that's the internet weather. Great. I don't think there was anything really um, new that uh, we haven't seen before. I do think, though, over time, Matt was talking about some of these industrial controls ports. Um, I just want to make sure that we keep an eye on those because as more and more things join the Internet of Things, we're going to see, I think, more and more industrial controls that potentially could become parts of these botnets. And, and uh, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.